Okay, the only announcement that I remember that we have, I think it's the only one that's going on, is we will have the church picnic out at Orlando Solaces on Saturday, October the 16th. We'll have sign-up lists and let us know if you plan to be there so we can plan appropriately for food and, uh, and everything else and continue to pray that the rain will come in the middle of the week and not on the weekend and that we'll be in one of those cycles. All right. Cast your burden upon the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never suffer the righteous to be moved. Delight yourself also in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him, and he will bring it to pass. In God I have put my trust. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Before we open God's word this evening, let's make sure that we're in right relationship with the Lord, that if you watch the news this evening, you're probably still trying to get back in fellowship. And uh, that's why I don't watch the news anymore. So it's a good time for us to remember that we are to walk by the Spirit and be in right relationship with the Lord, constantly claiming promises and focusing on what the Lord is doing in our lives and forget all of the uh, chatter that's going on around us that is just there to distract us. So let's bow our heads, and after a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're just so thankful that we know that you are in control of the events that are taking place around us and around the world. And as we are here with sort of ringside seats as to what's happening We're not sure where things are going and what's going to be the situation in two months or six months or a year, but you do. And so we need to just relax, go about our primary purpose here in life, which is to be your representative and to be giving people the gospel and focusing our attention on our spiritual growth, our spiritual life, and not getting distracted by all of the cares of Satan's cosmic system. Father, we thank you that we have your word to enlighten us and inform us. And tonight, as we study it, we pray that you would give us some insight into uh, what has happened before in history and what is happening now, and that in many ways there's nothing new under the sun, but it's new to us, and we need to learn to handle it biblically. So, Father, we pray that you challenge us with your word tonight. In Christ's name, amen. All right, open your Bibles to Judges, Judges chapter 3, and we're in the last verse of Judges chapter 3. The last verse of Judges 3 is a very interesting verse. It's one of the more cryptic verses that you have in the Bible, and I bet it's one that most of you just read past and say, oh, well, that's interesting, and go right on to the much larger story that begins in chapter 4. But it is an important transitional verse for a number of reasons. And so we need to stop and make sure we really understand why it is there. Because when we look at it, we think about it. One of the reasons it stands out for us is that it doesn't make sense to be there. It's only one short verse and it doesn't fit with the surrounding context 
neither does it have the normal structure that we've seen and come to expect in each of these uh, episodes with the judges. So tonight we're going to look at it as the cattle prod massacre. Last time, remember, we had uh, Lefty killed Fatty and escaped to the outhouse. So tonight we have the cattle prod massacre. And we have to remind ourselves of what is going on in Judges. One of the things that I learned the first time I really worked with this verse was back when I was in seminary and I was having to write my master's thesis and choosing a topic and I chose a topic from Judges and I was working through Judges and uh, at that time I had listened to Charlie Clough teach Judges and he was bringing out some fascinating points and I've read several, uh, I've read a lot of commentaries on Judges and there's one that came out about 20 years ago that is uh, just outstanding in many ways because most Christians try to interpret Judges through the lens of Hebrews 11 where you have many of these men, Jephthah, Barak, Gideon, Samson, all mentioned as examples of faith. And so we take that as the hermeneutical key and we look at them as great heroes of the faith. But we don't have the right perspective because when we think of great heroes of the faith, we're thinking of David and we're thinking of Paul and we're thinking of those who are uh, exceptional where a lot is told to us. And the examples that are given to us in the book of Judges are of men who have great sin problems. They have been... Uh, captured by the uh, culture of the world around them. But at some point, they do trust God, and God uses them to bring about tremendous victories. And that's always been an encouragement to me because most of us have struggles with our sin natures and problems that we have in life. And sometimes we just feel defeated. And frankly, if I read through ju the end of Judges and read all about Samson, I would never put him in, in Hebrews 11, but God does. So that means he's got a different uh, standard of measurement than I do. So there's great hope for us. But when we come to this particular episode, it just sort of doesn't fit. And I'll explain that in this review. So we've looked at the first three chapters that tell us what the background is for the book, how Israel... Uh, has uh, conquered some of the tribes, has mostly conquered some other tribes, and failed to conquer and just compromised and got along with other tribes. And the result of that compromise and failure is that it will, be, it will set up a cycle of disobedience and discipline that goes through the entire book. And that's the point that the writer is making, is that when you compromise with the world, when you compromise with the culture around you, and you, get, and you go along to get along, then you are committing spiritual suicide. You are shooting yourself in the foot spiritually, and it is destructive. And too many Christians are compromising. They're very comfortable and have had two or three or four or five or six or seven decades of getting along with the culture around us. But the culture around us is what the Bible calls the world. And there are three enemies in the Christian life. There's the devil, 
There's our own sin nature, and there is the world. The world is our enemy. It is not our friend. And yet too often we compromise with the world to get a paycheck. We compromise with with the world so that people will not think that somehow we're an oddball. We compromise with the world so we will minimize conflicts in the family or difficulties with associates. But the problem with all of that is the same problem that we see in Judges. Compromise with the world and with sin and with Satan is self-destructive. And so that is what's happened. The result of that compromise is the process of being paganized. Uh, Technically, they are being Canaanized. They are learning to live like the Canaanites. And by the end of the book, they're outdoing the Canaanites. And the sad thing is, if you're an observer of what is going on in churches in America for the last 40 years, you will discover that there are a vast number of, quote, Christian churches, unquote, that are looked upon as great bastions of religious fortitude, and they are just pits of paganism. And they have great exteriors, they have a lot of money, they have beautiful choirs and wonderful education programs for children, and they look beautiful on the outside, but there's no doctrine on the inside, there's no walk with the Lord, there's no spiritual life. They have become completely paganized. And what happens is that that paganization process affects the leadership, it affects your religious leaders, In the case of Israel, that's the Levites, the priests and the Levites. And for the people, uh, that's the last part. The people just are living just like the Canaanites. They're worse than the Canaanites in many cases. And so the center part of this book is what's called the Book of the Judges. And it traces the careers of these judges, Othniel, then Ehud, who actually is not called a judge, at Shamgar, who is not a, called a judge, may not even be, have been a believer, as we'll see, and may not, and was probably not Jewish or an Israelite. Deborah, Gideon, Tola and Jair, uh, Jephthah, Ibzon, Elon, Ab, Abdon, and Samson. He's the worst. So these are the major names, and we're going through this in, in the process. But this thing with Shamgar, who I did not list there because he isn't called a judge, uh, is very different. What we've seen is this cycle of disobedience. And there's always this statement that, and Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. And evil being described as idolatry, summarizing all of the horrible things they're doing in the name of religion. So they're disobedient, and then God disciplines them. And after a time, they cry out, not necessarily in repentance, as I showed, but they cry out because of their horrible circumstances and suffering. How many times, I don't want anybody to wave their hands, how many times when you were punished, maybe got a good spanking you deserved when you were a kid, and you said, hmm, well, I'm really not sorry I did it. And you, but you cried out because you just didn't want to be spanked anymore. You were sorry you got caught and got punished. That's pretty much what's happening with them. 
And so then we have God in his grace, whether they have changed their mind or not, he delivers them. He sends a deliverer. And in most cases, as we will see, that deliverer is identified as a judge or that they judged Israel. But in the case of Ehud and Shamgar, and interestingly enough, Gideon, nothing is said that the word, the verb, neither the verb nor the noun for judging is used for them. But it is for the others. Now, I just observed that today. After all the many years that I've looked at this book, I had never observed that before. And I don't know what it means. Because Gideon's not in quite the same class. But anyway, I don't, I don't know the answer. Maybe it'll come to me. So we see this cycle. Othniel's the best. And it's just this continued cycle. We have Othniel, Ehud, and Deborah, and then Gideon, Jephthah, and Samson as it deteriorates. Each cycle takes the Israelites deeper and deeper into the pit of rebellion against God and carnality. So when we look at, think about what we have studied and seen, last time we looked at Moab, but the time before that we looked at the first judge, Othniel, and the uh, hostile power, the oppressor that God brought in was Kushan Rishathaim, Kushan of the double evil. And he is really off this map. He's across uh, the desert over in uh, the area of uh, Mesopotamia. And he's going to come through and he's going to take over uh, and cause Israel to submit and force them to um, pay taxes to him and everything else until Othniel is raised up by the Lord to take him out. So he's coming in. If you look at the map, he's really coming in from the, there we go. He's coming in from the northeast and and probably came around and then came down from the north. And so that's the direction of that enemy. And he's a foreign in, enemy in terms of coming a long distance. Then south uh, you have from the southeast, you have the Moabites coming in with Eglon, and they just, they're the neighbors, and they're just coming across the Jordan River, and he sets up his headquarters here at Jericho. And that episode ended with Ehud, after he assassinated him, assassinated him goes into the hill country of Samaria, blows on the shofar, rallies the troops, and they come down, they send one. Uh, one contingent down to block the fords so they ca- the uh, Moabites can't escape, and they can also ambush the uh, those in reserve, the reinforcements who are coming from the east to help out, and they wipe out uh, the Moabites and secure their deliverance. And the result of that is that verse 30 of chapter 3, Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. Now think about where we were 80 years ago. Most of you were not here 80 years ago. There might be one or two that were, but we won't point them out. 80 years ago, that was um, about 1940. Well, lots happened in 80 years. 
But that's a long time. It's longer than most people live. So there were a lot of people who lived most of their life in in peace, and there was no uh, oppression during during that particular time. But then we read after that verse that God's going to raise up another one who is said to deliver Israel, and his name is Shamgar. Now, you look at that street sign, and these are the four letters in his name. There are four consonants. I'll have these up later with the transliteration. This is, this is the letter Sheen, which is an S-H sound. This is the letter Mame or M, and this is the letter uh, for G and the letter for R, Shamgar. Uh, no vowels there. Uh, that's not a Hebrew name. That's your first clue that something interesting is going on here. But you don't get that unless you know Hebrew and do a good bit of, of, of digging. So verse 31 reads, After him, that is, after Ehud, was Shamgar, the son of Anat, who killed 600 men of the Philistines with an ox goad, and he also delivered Israel. That's all we know about him. Well, we'll spend most of the next hour talking about him. This is an interesting passage and a, a very interesting guy. So this episode with Shamgar is inserted between the second deliverance, which is that of Ehud and his assassination of Eglon, and the next del- deliverance, which is brought about by Deborah, who is uh, called the prophetess, and that she was judging Israel at that time. That's verse 4. So uh, this next chapter is also a favorite story of mine, chapter 4. And then follow, it's followed by a, a hymn, a psalm of victory uh, that Deborah wrote. So we have two chapters there. And in between this this section from 12 to 31, which is uh, about 18 or 19 verses, 19 verses, then what you, are 12 to 30 rather, that's 18 verses, you just have one verse for Shamgar. And it's just put in there, and there's a lot of questions that we should ra- raise about this because there's no mention of the formulae that we have come to expect or the structure that we have seen. First of all, there's no mention of Israel's evil in the sight of the Lord. Nothing like that happens. He just comes in and just says, after him, after Ehud, was Shamgar. Second, we're told about an oppression from the Philistines. Well, that came out of left field, didn't it? When have we heard about the Philistines in the first three chapters? Nowhere. Well, how did this start? Where did it take place? What was the course of action that they took? None of that is told us. We're not given any any information. Third thing is, there's no mention of God raising up Shamgar as a deliverer. There's no mention of that. There's God raised up Othniel, God raised up Ehud, God's obviously raising up Deborah and Barak, and he's raising up Gideon with a personal commission by the angel of the Lord. And on we go through Jephthah and Samson, who are all uh, given direction by the Lord, but, but not Shamgar. 
So what's going on there? Next, the pe- there's no mention of the people crying out to the Lord for deliverance. There's an oppression going on by the Philistines. We're not told anything about it, and the people aren't crying out for deliverance. It doesn't mention God raising up a deliverer. God raised up Othniel. God strengthened uh, uh, Ehud, but God is not mentioned. In fact, if you look at the verse carefully, God isn't mentioned at all. The Holy Spirit isn't mentioned. Uh, then, though Shamgar delivers Israel, he's not identified as a judge, as I said. But neither is uh, neither is Ehud or Gideon. And then, last, uh, next to last, the Holy Spirit does not come upon him. The Holy Spirit did not come upon Ehud. But Deborah is a prophetess, so even though it doesn't state that the Holy Spirit comes upon her, she has a relationship with the Holy Spirit in terms of her uh, prophetic gift, and we'll have to explain that when we get there. And last thing is God is not mentioned at all. Now, where else in the Bible is God not mentioned? Anybody have a clue? There's a whole book in the Bible that never mentions the name of God. Esther. Esther's not mentioned. What's the point of Esther? The point of Esther is to show that God is taking care of his people, his promise to the covenant, even when they're disobedient, even when they ignore him, even when they're out of line. God is always watching over Israel in his providential care. And I think that's important an important observation to bring to bear on this verse that Shamgar is someone God has uh, used to bring deliverance to Israel, but it's through his providential guidance. It is not through his directly raising up uh, uh, Shamgar to be a judge or to be a deliverer because Frankly, Shamgar's not, he's not an Israelite, and he's probably not even a believer. You know, God can use rebellious unbelievers to accomplish his purpose. He does that with, he did that with uh, Cyrus, who he called his anointed. And it is Cyrus who begins to send the Jews back from uh, Babylon, back to uh, Jerusalem, uh, to eventually rebuild the temple. And he sends them back with with gifts, with money, and with the treasures and our, uh, furniture from the uh, temple that was still around in Babylon. And so God uses unbelievers. God uses people, and I don't know whether Jehu in the Old Testament was a believer or not, but he certainly was a bull in a china closet. And God used him to bring discipline on uh, the northern kingdom of Israel and on the line of Ahab. But, you know, people today would say, oh, well, he wouldn't be a very good leader. They wouldn't like his personality. They wouldn't like the fact that he wasn't uh, uh, walking with the Lord and a lot of other things. God dealt with him in terms of his spiritual life eventually, but God uses a lot of people in order to bring some level of protection uh, to his own people. All of this is part of these questions that we should ask to understand what's going on. In Judges 3.10, we read that the Spirit of the Lord came upon him, that's Othniel, and he judged Israel. 
In Judges 4.4, we read, Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. But as I pointed out, neither Ehud nor Shamgar are mentioned as judges. So my first observation to bring to bear tonight is that the absence of the term judge in both of these accounts suggests that something is different and something is wrong. And all I'm saying, I'm not making a huge point about this, is that this shows that that you start with Othniel, as I've said all along, he has nothing negative said about it. Ehud, we think, well, I don't see anything so wrong with what Ehud has done, but there's a hint that he's not quite, doesn't quite have the spiritual life that Othniel has. We know that from earlier episodes about Othniel. And the fact that he's not a judge and then Shamgar's not a judge just indicates that, well, there's something not as good about them as there was about Othniel. So we have to answer several questions as we get into this. First of all, what's going on here with the Philistines? How did they attack? Where was it fell? What part of the country did they hit? And when did it occur? There, they, the Philistines come out of a migration of Greeks that are referred to as the Sea Peoples, and they tried. They had one beachhead far west in the in North Africa at Carthage, and then they tried to invade Egypt, and were repulsed by several Egyptian armies under several different pharaohs. And they finally kept moving east until they found a a beachhead near Gaza. Today we still have trouble in the Gaza Strip. But that's the area where they were, Gaza, Gath, Ekron. These were some of the cities of of the Philistines. But what's going on here? We're just not given any details. We need to answer questions like, who is Shamgar? Where does he come from? What do we know about him? What can we find out about him? Is he an Israelite or not? From where does he come? From whence does he come? Does he come from one of the Canaanite groups? Does he come from within uh, the land of Israel? Or from whence does he come? And how does he emerge as a champion of Israel? And then last, how did he manage to slaughter 600 Philistines who were known for their military might They had iron weapon technology, so they had an advanced military technology. They were ruthless in battle, and yet he defeats them with an ox goad, basically a non-electric cattle prod. Now, that's very interesting. It reminds me of some of those karate movies that have come out, and you have just the guy coming along, looks like a nondescript peasant who's just traveling along, and eight or ten bandits jump out and attack him and he is a kung fu master and in about two seconds with a twig kills all of them, something like that. That's about what Shamgar is. So it indicates that if he's able to do that, he must be some kind of a warrior. So that's a a bit of a hint for us that he's not just uh, your everyday person walking along through the Gaza Strip. Uh, He is a man with a mission and military training. 
So the next observation that I'm going to make is that the author intentionally slips him in between Ehud and Deborah. He does this. It breaks the flow of the story, and it's very abrupt, and the author does that to get our attention because he wants us to understand something, but you have to think about it to figure out what it is that he wants us to understand. And so the uh, the next thing that we learn is that something about his about his uh, sort of this background. Let me let me just back up and say something else about this. So Ehud comes. Uh, Shamgar comes after Ehud. Now I want you to look at just the next three or four verses. We'll start in verse thirty. Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel. The land had rest for eighty years. And how does verse thirty-one begin? After him was Shamgar, the son of Anat, who killed 600 men of the Philistines with an ox goat, and he also delivered Israel. Verse 1 says, when Ehud was dead. So you would expect verse 1 to come before the mention of Shamgar. But the fact that Shamgar is mentioned indicates that it's right near the end of Ehud's life, and that what happens when he dies is the children of Israel do evil in the sight of the Lord. But I want you to turn over a page, and I didn't put this up on the screen. Look at verse 6 of Deborah's victory song. She says, In the days of Shamgar, son of Anath, in the days of Jael, the highways were deserted, by, and the travelers walked along the byways. You don't get out on the highways because you don't want to be noticed. So you're hiding from somebody. You don't want people to see you. You're staying undercover and flying low. So, uh, But this happens in the days of Shamgar, the son of Anat. Notice when Shamgar is mentioned twice, it's emphasized that he's the son of Anat. That's important. And it's in the days of Jael. Who's Jael? Well, she's the one who, who uh, is going to uh, nail Sisera at the end of the Deborah story. And so she and Deborah are the two real heroines of, of that whole episode. So it's Deborah writes that it's in the time of Shamgar and Jael. So there's an overlapping a little bit here. Uh, in terms of this this time period and and the judges, and it comes at, right at the end of those 80, 80 years, and something has started to happen in terms of an, of an oppression from the Philistines uh, down in the south, and that's where Shamgar comes along. Now, what do we learn from the name Shamgar? Well, when we look at Jewish names they are composed of three letters. This is a four-letter word. And it looks, um, you have uh, the sheen is the first letter here. It's an SH, and then the M, and then the G, and then the R. These little points here are the, uh, are the vowels, and you can just ignore them for now. See, most Hebrew names are like Barak. 
Here it is in Hebrew to the right, and you basically have three consonants, the B, the R, and the Q. Most names are that way. David is another one. You have David. The Vav, that's the middle letter, is pronounced like a V. One of the things that I always, when I was a kid, like some of you at the time, Pastor Theme always pronounced it like a V. When I went to seminary, they it's hard to say this as a W. And I've never understood that because if you go to Israel, they always pronounce this as a Vav and not as a Wow. Okay? That's just one of those little things that always irritates me is why modern biblical Hebrew scholars can't get this right. It's pretty simple. Most of them lead tours to Israel and hear the difference. You might be saying, well... Okay, so David and Barak, those are have three letters, but what about a name like Jonathan? That seems to have a lot more. You have a Yud, a He, a Vav, a Nun, a Tav, and a final Nun. So it's Y-H, and then you have this Vav here, which is serving as a vowel, actually, so you wouldn't write it in as a, as a consonant. And then you have the N and the T and the N. And so I put them out here, and that surely, certainly doesn't look like it's, like it's three letters. But what you have, the, the root is here, Natan, the name Nathan. It's the Hebrew verb, which means to give. And it's prefixed with Yah, which is the first syllable in the name of Yahweh. God gives. So it's a co- really a compound word. And my point is that when, and Othniel, I put Othniel up here also because that's another one that's just kind of strange. You have a consonant here, which is just transliterated like an apostrophe because it's sort of a very, very soft guttural. And then a T and an N, this uh, dot and the Yud here, that's a vowel. And then you have the olive, which is like a reverse. You like you have the beginning and the end of single quotes. And then you have an L. So it's Atniel. And the E-L at the end is the name of God. And the Atni has the idea of someone who is strong or mighty with God. My point is that when you look at Shamgar... Shamgar's not a not a Hebrew name. So what can we learn about this name Shamgar? Well, it's been determined through study and through some archaeological discoveries at a place called Nuzi, which is up north of Israel, uh, a place called Nuzi where they've uh, discovered through archaeology a lot of uh, ancient texts that this is really a Hurrian name. Y'all remember the Hurrians from your study of history, right? Well, this was one of the many different tribes that migrated across the Middle East, and they they had uh, people who lived all through the area of Canaan and all up into what we refer to as Syria. And one of the things about the, the Hurrians that we discover is that they had some, some, uh, some aspects to their culture that were similar to the Swiss. Now, the Swiss are known for banking, 
But back about four or 500 years ago, the Swiss were really known as mercenary soldiers. And the French king and the pope and numerous others would hire Swiss mercenaries to guard them. And that was true for the Hurrians. They had, uh, were known for being fierce warriors and that they were uh, hired as, as mercenaries, especially by, by the pharaoh. So that gives us a hint that this guy Shamgar is not an Israelite. It's probably not a believer and that he has a military background and could possibly be a mercenary warrior. Now, we really get confirmation of that because he is called Shamgar ben Anath. Now, who is Anath? Now, you don't want to be uh, naming your children with one of her names because she is the goddess of war. She is the consort of Baal. So she is uh, well-known and worshipped throughout the Middle East. We've talked about worshipping the Baals and the Asherah, and you would just throw a knot in there with them, and you get these three, one god and two goddesses, and they show up a lot throughout uh, the Middle East. And in the Egyptian 19th dynasty, now let's put our thinking caps on a minute, when you usually hear somebody like Doug Petrovich come in and talk about Egypt at the time of the Exodus, that's as thought to be the Egyptian 18th dynasty. By the way, when I go on vacation in a couple of weeks, uh, Petrovich is going to come over here for Tuesday night and Thursday night, so you'll enjoy your archaeological lessons. But the Egyptian dynasty then, the 18th dynasty, let's say, is the dynasty that sees the exodus. So the dynasty that comes after them, let's say 75 to 100 years later, is the 19th dynasty. The 19th dynasty is in that period 1200 to 1100 BC, which is the time period of the judges. And in the Egyptian 19th dynasty, Anat is included and absorbed into the pantheon of the Egyptians. And she becomes the personal protectress of the Pharaoh. The plot thickens. So you have this guy, and he's called Shamgar ben Anat, and you say, well, how in the world do you get all of this out of that? Well, there's an inscription from the Wadi Hamamat, Uh, from around 1166 to 1160, where it designates a troop of Hapiru mercenaries as the Ben Anat, the sons of Anat. It's like the 101st Airborne called the Screaming Eagles. Okay? So this is an elite fighting force. These are the shock troops that the Pharaoh used for his personal protection so that when he goes into battle, these are the ones that will surround him and and protect him. So Shamgar ben Anat is not only uh, an Israelite, he's not a believer, and he is a well-trained mercenary who can take on the Philistines all by himself. 
So this guy is really something. And God's going to use him. And that's the part of the point that is being made here is that God is going to use this unbelieving unbelieving, uh, military warrior to deliver Israel. So what question should you be asking? What's wrong with the Jews? How come he's not using any of them? Because they've compromised. Because they're losers. Because at this point in their history, they don't have anybody worthy to take control. And to support that a little bit, let's just look at the beginning of the next section. I actually have this on slide. Here we go. Judges 4-5, talking about uh, introducing us to Deborah. We've already been introduced to the fact that this is in the north. If you've been to Israel, uh, Hatsor is north of Tiberias, north of the Dead Sea. I mean, excuse me, north of the Sea of Galilee. And uh, they are coming down from, from the north into the area of the Valley of Esdralon. And uh, Deborah is going to gather her troops at Mount Tabor. So this whole battle takes place. If you remember when you stood on the ridge at Mount Carmel and you look out over that huge valley, that's where the, that battle in chapter 5 is going to take place. And so she's up in that area between Ramah and Bethel, which actually is a little bit south of there in the hill country. She's between Ramah and Bethel in the mountains of Ephraim, and the children of Israel would come to her for judgment. So she sent and called for Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh in Naphtali, that's up to the northwest, and said to him, Has not the Lord God of Israel commanded, Go and deploy troops at Mount Tabor? Mount Tavor. That's what the rifle is named for, Mount Tavor. Uh, Take with you 10,000 men of the sons of Naphtali and the sons of Zebulun. And against you I will deploy Sisera. How did that jump from there? Did I leave something out? No, and against you I will deploy Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and multitude at, multitude at the river Kishon, and I will deliver him into your hand. What does Barak say? Tough military hero. Okay, I'll take him on. says, no, I'm not going to go unless you go with me. You've got to hold my hand. The men are not manly men anymore. Does that remind you of the woke generals we've got I got about five minutes watching uh, these generals being interviewed by the Senate Armed Forces Committee today, and it was enough to make me just want to go throw up. That's what we've got is a bunch of woke, feminist, feminized men leading our military. And that's what Barack is. And see, the reason Shamgar's episode is put there is to make us aware of the fact that there's not really a good male hero in Israel at this time. And then we're introduced to Deborah. Why Deborah? Well, can't find a good man. And so God uses Deborah. And then she's going to give the commission to uh, Barak to go after the, to fight the Canaanites and he wants to wiggle out of it. I won't go if you don't go with me. 
So she said, I will go with you, but nevertheless, there will be no glory for you in the journey you are taking, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. And then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kedesh. She, she said, you're not going to get any glory out of it. She's going to be there. She's going to get glory. And at the end, Yael is going to get glory when she nails Sisera to the ground. So that's what's going on here. Now let me back up a slide that I missed. So here's what's, been ha- what's happening in this whole context. You've got the Moabites with Eglon that have been putting pressure on Israel from the, from the southeast. You've got the Philistines who are putting pressure on Judah from the southwest. And now in the next chapter, we're going to see um, we're going to see uh, the king of Hatzor pushing down uh, from the north. And that's putting the squeeze on Israel. But God's going to deliver them. He's handled the situation with the Moabites. He sends this mercenary in to take out the Philistines and shake them up. And he kills 600 of them with an ox goad. And we're told he also uh, delivered Israel. So we have a couple of archaeological slides here. Here is a picture of Philistine captives uh, depicted on an Egyptian temple from the 1100s. So this is roughly that same time period where the Philistines were defeated by by Egyptian forces. And we're told that he fights with an ox ox goad. And here's a couple of slides that depict uh, ox goads. This is a, uh, in the foreground on the ground, there's a uh, there's the uh, plow, and then you have some farm tools up here, rakes and forks and shovels. It's not as well made as what you might find over at Home Depot or someplace. Here's a man plowing with a cow and a donkey holding an ox goad, and he, that's just that long pole here that he's going to use to poke him with. Here is a more modern reconstruction of a plow along with an ox goad and a man out in the field in eastern Samaria holding an ox goad to poke the horse. So those are our pictures. So the point of all of this is to show what has happened in Israel and that this is what can happen to us and has happened to us and it's happening to and has happened to many other nations in history there is a internal collapse of the culture the first divine institution the second divine institution the third divine institution have collapsed why do we know that because they're not rearing their children according to the torah they have no young men who are men they have no They've been hiding in the back roads and not getting out on the main roads, so there's a lack of courage and a lack of bravery. And so there's a lack of leadership in Israel. And we, we'll see this throughout this particular uh, cycle. Uh, we're getting the clear implications that there's no one worthy of coming up against the, the enemy. And we see a hint of that with Gideon because when the angel of the Lord shows up to commission Gideon, Gideon is hiding out, winnowing um, winnowing the wheat uh, in a wine vat, hiding from the enemy. 
So he doesn't seem like he's so brave, and that's why many people have thought the angel of the Lord is somewhat sarcastic when he calls Gideon, oh, man of valor, because he's hiding from the, from the enemy. And what we see here is that God uses a Gentile to bless Israel instead of using Israel to bless the Gentiles. What's the point of the, of the, of the Abrahamic covenant? that Israel is supposed to be blessing the Gentiles, but they're not a blessing to anybody because of their spiritual collapse. This nation has been a blessing to many nations and many people throughout the last 200 years. They still want to do that, but they're spending money they don't have, and it's going to destroy us. It will collapse the economy eventually. The only reason we're still afloat is because, I believe, because of God's grace. Another thing that comes out of this is that if you were a Jew and read this, that God was using a Hurrian mercenary to defeat your enemies, it would be a real insult to you that that God wasn't using an Israelite. He's poking fun at them again, showing that they are failing at their responsibilities. So this is the same thing that has happened in our culture, and that is that we are uh, compromising with evil. We have gotten to a point where, uh, as we'll see in the next chapter, where there's uh, the men are no longer manly and the women are no longer feminine. But the men want to be women, or some of them do, and they want to go so far as to emasculate themselves and go through surgery so that they can come out like a woman and it destroys their soul. The, the rate of suicide among people who have gone through these transgender uh, surgeries is, incredi- uh, the, is incredible. Uh, they are miserable afterwards. Many of them have given testimony they wish they could go back. And some of the worst child abuse that is taking place in our nation today are these parents who, because their little four-year-old or five-year-old is playing with dolls or their little uh, five- or six-year-old girl is a tomboy, that they immediately assume that they're a girl in a boy's body or a boy in a girl's body, and so they want to correct what God did which is the height of arrogance, and put them under the knife, put them under all sorts of horrific drugs in order to change them. And this is now accepted as normative, and anybody who criticizes it like I just did is an enemy of our culture, and we're not accepted. I'll be canceled. I can't wait. (laughs) That's the mark of heroism in our culture, to be canceled. So we have all this gender confusion, and it's becoming accepted and normative. People are calling good evil and evil good. And this is the same thing that is happening in Israel, and it's all because of the, uh, their compromise with culture. So I have just, I still have issues with this new computer. Okay, so... Let's go to the New Testament, a couple of passages. Turn over to James. James chapter 1. James is one of my favorite books, and it's a deeply convicting book for anybody who takes it seriously, but it's a challenge for us to persevere in living the Christian life. 
at the end of James chapter 1, James is making a, a simple observation about what spiritual maturity is going to look like. He uses the word religion. Now, many people in our circles use the word religion in contrast to a relationship, that all other uh, religions are, are fake, they're works-oriented, which is true. But the Bible doesn't use the word religion in that way. That's picked up a more of a technical theological meaning that is then read into the text. But then you have problems when you read verse 27 where James says, pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this. He's talking about the application of our faith, which is the subject in the last part of chapter 1 and, and all of chapter 2. He says to visit orphans and widows in their trouble, and then look at that last line, to keep oneself unspotted. So it's the negative of the word that where we talk about Christ is without spot or blemish. So it's the negative, to keep ourselves unspotted from the world. What is the world? It's all the philosophical systems, all of the religious systems, all of the street wisdom that uh, comes together to form a culture. Uh, their values related to the arts, related to music, related to literature, and we really see that. When you have a culture that is grounded in the word, the arts and music and literature all reflects that Judeo-Christian worldview. You think of Shakespeare as one of the high watermarks of that. But when you get into a pagan culture, it just deteriorates and it destroys everything that it comes in contact with. And we are to keep ourselves unspotted, unstained from the world, not let the world's thinking come into our souls. Then you turn over a couple of pages and we come to James 3. In James chapter 3, we have a statement in verse 15 where James is contrasting the unbeliever who is worldly or the rebellious believer with what God expects. The contrast is between the fool and the wise. He says in verse 13, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy, see, this is the person who is walking according to the flesh. If you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, if you're self-centered, narcissist, it's all about you, don't boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom, that is this wisdom of the world, is characterized by three things. He says, this wisdom does not descend from above, but it is earthly as opposed to heavenly. It is the wisdom of the people who are the earth dwellers. Those are the rebels against God in Revelation. This wisdom is earthly. It is sensual. That's a bad translation. It's that that word... Um, that is translated as natural over in First uh, Corinthians chapter two, verse thirteen, and it's sukikos, it's soulish, as opposed to pneumatikos, which is spiritual. 
And so what he's saying here is this is the wisdom uh, that is earthly. It's the wisdom of those who are spiritually dead, and it is demonic. See, there's no difference between human viewpoint and demonic viewpoint. There's no difference between the devil's thinking and the world's thinking. There's no difference between the most uh, nice-sounding human-based philosophy and the devil's thinking. It's all demonic. There's only two ways to think, the way God thinks and the way man thinks, the way the devil thinks, the way rebellious creatures think. There's only two spheres. There's not, you can't put your foot in one and your foot in the other. And why is that? because of what James says in James chapter 4. He calls them adulterers and adulteresses, not because they are uh, sexually unfaithful, but because they are spiritually unfaithful to the God who saved them. He says, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? See, there's no middle line. Your friendship, you're either a friend of the world and you hate God, or you're a friend of God and you hate the world. There's no middle ground. And the trouble with that, that has destroyed most Christian lives and the impact of Christianity is that so many Christians go through their life just wanting to be comfortable with the world. And James says, whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. This is what happened to Israel. They have become friends with the world, and so they can't even defend themselves anymore, but God in his grace provides for them. The solution is in Romans 12, 1 and 2, where Paul says, I implore you, which I have changed, I implore you to therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. So the reason he says bodies is because the body stands for the whole person. You can't have your body go in one direction and your soul go in the other direction. Some of you may have tried something to do that at one point or another, but they have to stay together. So your, your whole person is what he's talking about as a living sacrifice. That means instead of doing what you want to do, you're going to do what God wants to do. Instead of me doing what I want to do, I do what God wants me to do. Uh, living sacrifice set apart. Not that the translation is holy, but that's what holy means, set apart to the service of God, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. How do you do that? You do, do it, verse 2, and do not be conformed or pressed into the mold of the ionas, not cosmos, which is world, so you think it's that, but it's ionos, which means the spirit of the world, the spirit of the age. The spirit of our age is antinomianism. The spirit of our age is, is the uh, postmodern thinking. The spirit of our age is falling into the trap of critical race theory and critical social justice and all of this woke Marxism that is going around which is just straight out of the pit of hell. And it is nothing other than pure Marxism. Every time you hear the word woke, you ought to translate it in your brain to Marxism because that's exactly what it is. And we are not to be conformed to the spirit of this age, but transformed by the renewing of the thinking of your mind. 
And that isn't going to happen by picking up your Bible and going to church for an hour or an hour and a half every Sunday morning. You have to spend hours, spend time every single day. It takes a long time to get rid of all the garbage that's in our souls. And we have to spend time doing it week after week, day after day, memorizing scripture, reading scripture, thinking through what God, how God wants us to think and respond about the issues of life. We're to be respond, renewed by the thinking of our mind that we may demonstrate through our lives as a, as an, as a testimony, as a witness in a courtroom demonstrating that God's will is good and acceptable and perfect. So there's only two options. Walk as a friend of the world, which is what Israel did again and again and again in the Old Testament, compromising with all of the false religions and everything else. So we either uh, go with the world or we take a stand against the world and follow the Lord. And it may be tough at times, and we may be ostracized. We may be kicked out of our families. That's what Jesus said. You know, the ones who follow me uh, need to be willing to give up their mother, their father, their sister, their brother, because there's nothing more important than that relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have to take a stand on that, not take a stand on it obnoxiously, but just take a stand on it graciously that this is where we stand. And we are going to follow the Lord because there is no hope any other way. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things this evening and to be reminded of just what an evil the world is and that we are not to compromise with the world for that is friendship with the devil and hostility to you. And Father, we see this example that the reason that Shamgar had to be used in the uh, deliverance of Israel is because they had become so uh, impoverished spiritually and and psychologically that they could no longer defend themselves and they were just willing to lose everything and lose all of their freedoms and and, and just collapse just so they could go after the the acceptance of the world around them and we need to be reminded of this lesson. We pray that we'll think about these things in Christ's name. Amen.